please keep your Bibles open in Nehemiah chapter 8, although we're going to be looking a little bit at Ezra and other portions in Nehemiah this morning. Uh, but let's have the Word of God open and ready before us as we examine the Scriptures together. Now, last week we considered the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, which led to the birthing of the New Testament church as 3,000 people were converted in one day. And then we read on in the book of Acts that many, many more uh, continued to turn to Jesus Christ in the weeks and the months which followed. But I also mentioned last week that Pentecost was a very unique historical event in the history of redemption. An event of profound theological importance in fulfilling all the Old Testament shadows that had been uh, there pointing forward both to Christ and to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it was also a day of ongoing uh, practical implication or application in our lives as Christians today. And if you missed that message, I would just encourage you to, uh, to go and, and listen to it or, or watch the video off our website. But if that special event of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a unique historical event in the redemption of God's people, should we... As the church today in Johannesburg in 2020, should we be looking for God to be doing something similar in our day? And if so, what should we be doing to prepare for that and, and to seek God to do that? And so that brings us to this whole topic today of revival. Those times in the history of the people of God where God has done something new on a great scale, bringing new life out of dead souls, restoring the, the spiritual zeal and passion of God's people where things had grown cold. One definition of revival says that revival is the renewal of the first love of Christians resulting in the conversion of sinners to God. It presupposes that the church is backslidden and revival means conviction of sin and searching of hearts among God's people. Revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. Now doesn't that excite your heart this morning? Don't you long for, for that description to be true of your own relationship to God? The renewal of your first love, the conversion of sinners around us, the awakening of the hearts of God's people, and the new beginning of a widespread obedience to God. I want us to, to base our study today on, on one of the greatest revivals recorded for us in the Old Testament, but my prayer has been not that our study would, would simply be one of considering this topic of revival on a kind of a, an academic or theological level, but rather that, that we would come to God's word today eager to, to learn what is required to be in place for God to send revival. So that individually and as the church here at Honeyridge, our hearts would become increasingly restless for God to do this same miracle of revival. Firstly in our own hearts, then in our church, and then in our city of Johannesburg in these days. 
And that we would do whatever we can to remove whatever obstacles may be hindering such a revival. And that we would become more and more a people who are pleading with God to bring about this work of revival. Solomon reminds us in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. And so there are many similarities between the poor spiritual state of God's people in the Old Testament in in Nehemiah's time and what we see in much of Christianity today. And so as we consider the, the state of the church around us, and let's not look too far away, let's Look introspectively this morning. We must confess that things look quite similar to the report which Nehemiah received back in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. You may recall that God's people had continuously broken the covenant of God over an extended period. And so ultimately God's covenant curses uh, said that If the people broke the covenant that God made with them, they would eventually be sent off into exile. And we find that taking place as the northern tribes of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians and then the the southern tribes of Judah were taken into captivity by the Babylonians uh, as the final result of their turning away from God. And they had been uh, in 70 years of exile by the time we get to our passage of Scripture. So turn back to chapter 1 of Nehemiah, where we read in verse 3. This is Nehemiah speaking, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province, speaking back of, of Judah, who have survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So that's the historical context into which uh, we find our passage this morning being written. And so if the situation in Nehemiah chapter 1 looked so bleak, what was it that brought about this great revival which we've just read about in chapter 8? And so I want us to look at three things this morning which brought about or contributed to true revival. Three things which we need to ensure are in place as we plead for God to send His Holy Spirit on our church and on our city. And so in the first place this morning, I want us to consider the heart of true spiritual leadership. Now, in God's providence, the timing of this sermon coincides today with our call for nominations for elders by the end of the day, so that we can bring names to the church at our QGM in a few weeks' time. So if we want God's work of revival to start with us at Honeyridge, let's turn the spotlight onto us as elders for a moment, onto those whom you may be looking to appoint as elders in the church in the year ahead. And we find two main characters at work here in the book of Nehemiah. The one person is Nehemiah and the other is Ezra the priest. And together these two men were the instrumental spiritual leaders in this work of revival which God brought about in Nehemiah chapter 8. So this first point then focuses on me as your pastor. It focuses on us as the elders of the church But it's wider than that. It focuses on all who are involved in leading our small groups, 
those who lead our Bible studies, those who lead our youth groups, those who teach our Sunday school, and by extension to the spiritual leadership roles that God may have given to you in your very own homes. So as we consider the heart of true spiritual leadership this morning, I want us to see firstly a concern for the people of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And so we see here in Nehemiah a man who, despite his great success in the world, he was the the king's cupbearer. In other words, he was in charge of the king's affairs. He had a heart for the things of God. He was concerned for the people of God. He wanted to know how God's people were doing. He wanted to know about the church. Nehemiah wasn't content, as so many Christians seem to be today, to say, well, you know, I'm okay spiritually and my life is going well, so that's all that really matters. No, a a true spiritual leader, from elder to Bible study leader to youth leader, Sunday school teacher to parents in the home, we must be concerned for the spiritual well-being of the church, both in terms of your immediate area of responsibility, those that God has entrusted to you to lead spiritually, but also, as we see here with Nehemiah, a concern for the wider body of Christ. When last have you inquired after the spiritual well-being of another person? Maybe let's start with your spouse. Let's start with your kids. Move on to those in your small group others in the church who you haven't seen for a while. Do you have a concern for the people of God? Secondly, we see a concern for the glory of God in verses 3 to 5. And they said to me, the the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. We don't have time to, to read Nehemiah's whole prayer this morning, but you will see that Nehemiah's grief and his response here was driven by a deep passion for the glory of God. He could not bear to see God's name being brought into disrepute by the nations around them, dragged through the mud. It grieved him to hear that the city of God, Jerusalem, was in ruins. He wanted to see God's people and God's glory restored. So how much concern do we have, do you have, for the glory of God? In our homes, in our church, and in our community. Does it bother you? No one's even heard of the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. 
or whatever other churches are in our area? Does it bother you that people don't even know that you're a Christian? When last have you mourned, even for a few minutes, let alone mourned for days, over the spiritual state of the church and the spiritual desert surrounding us in our city? Thirdly, a a true spiritual leader, we see, is diligent in the study of the Word of God. Verse 7 to 10. We can see this characteristic both in Ezra and in Nehemiah. So let's, for a moment, just look to the previous book of Ezra, Ezra chapter six, uh, sorry, chapter seven and verse six. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And then verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. Back in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 7 to 10, we see that Nehemiah has a deep knowledge of the word of God as he cries out to God in prayer. And he reminds God of God's own promises to his people. Nehemiah's prayer, you can read that this afternoon, is is saturated with scripture. It's saturated with the knowledge of God's commands, the, the knowledge of God's promises, which he prays back to God in prayer. Here again, I think we see the the problem of much of what is called Christianity today is that it is almost entirely void of the diligent study of the Word of God. How can a person lead others spiritually without diligent and committed study of the Word of God, the very breathed out Word of God as we considered a couple weeks ago, which is the source of all true spiritual truth and and wisdom and life. There's a lot of people who have a lot to say these days, especially in churches, especially on Christian television and YouTube. Youth leaders who are are cool and, and talk the lingo. Sunday school teachers who have the gift of the gab, Bible study leaders who are wonderful at at letting everyone chip in with, with their own thoughts on the passage, pulpit preaching which is motivational and, and inspirational but is void of the word of the Lord. This is why so much of Christianity today has lost its power, has lost its influence in the world, and especially why even that which may be viewed as successful if we look at some of these mega churches and their prominent leaders is not really having much of an impact on society because there is very little diligent study of the word of God. And this is something which is becoming more and more evident uh, among a new generation of youth workers, among a new generation of pastors, namely the lack of desire and importance and discipline given to the study of theology. Whether that's done formally through a seminary or whether it's done via correspondence or whether it's done through a structured program of disciplined self-study, it's just not happening. And so those who teach are shallow in their own grasp of the scripture. And what they teach then is only skin deep. And those then who are being taught really have nothing on which to base their lives and certainly nothing which they then can feed, uh, pass on to others. 
Ezra, we are told, was a teacher skilled in the law of Moses. Why? For he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. And so that leads me directly on to the, the fourth aspect of true spiritual leadership are people who are dedicated to living out the word of God. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. As you read through the book of Ezra, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you will find that these two men were men of obedience. They lived out the word of God daily. They were above reproach in their conduct. The problem in much of our lives is not that we don't know what God wants of us in a certain situation or a certain decision that we have to make. The problem usually is that we know what we have to do, but we just choose not to do it. We've, we've not set our hearts on doing what God's word teaches. We think we can play loose and fast with God's word. We can apply it as we see fit in different situations instead of diligently committing to living according to the principles and the commands and the statutes of Scripture. Ours is the generation of pragmatism. And that is sadly the, the motto of, of much of what is going on in the church today. No longer do we speak of, of moral absolutes in terms of God's word. No longer do we speak of propositional truth. But rather we speak in terms of the gray areas of grace. Turning the grace of God into a license for vagueness and compromise. Robert Murray McShane, the great Young Scottish preacher who died at the age of 29, he said this, The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness, my personal obedience to the word of God. Take heed to yourself, he says. Your own soul is your first and greatest care. Keep up close communion with God. Study likeness to him in all things. Get your text from God. Your thoughts, your words from God. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be its success. It's not great talent that God blesses. So much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is a powerful weapon in the hand of God. So there's just a, an appeal to you. To pray for me as your pastor, to pray for us as elders, to pray for your Bible study leaders, to pray for your Sunday school teachers. Because as much as Satan will seek to destroy us in effectiveness, he will be targeting our holiness. He will be targeting our compromise. And so we need to pray that God would help us to be these effective, powerful weapons as we commit in obedience to the ways of God. And then fifthly, a true spiritual leader is devoted to teaching the word of God. Again, Ezra 7 verse 10, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, there's the obedience, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
Not only did he study the word of God, not only did he live out the word of God, but he taught the word of God. And as you read both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see that much of this teaching that took place was not in any kind of formal instruction in a classroom environment, but it was simply teaching which came out naturally through their interaction with God's people on a daily basis. They had a teacher's heart, a disciple-making heart, a desire to impart the, the knowledge of God practically to others in their daily lives. They weren't content like monks to go away into a monastery and study the word of, of God themselves. No, they were, were burdened to impart that knowledge of God to others. To see God working in others as he was working in them so that they might be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So yes, in the church we, we know that the gift of teaching is, is a specific requirement for, for elders. But, but this applies just as much to every other aspect of spiritual leadership that we've been talking about this morning. Teaching the word of God to those whom God has entrusted to your care should never be a duty or a burden. It, it should be a delight. For how else can you spiritually lead others under your care if you do not teach them the word of God? But I want you to notice the sequence from Ezra. He firstly set his heart to study the word of God for himself. Then he committed to obeying it personally. And then he taught it to those whom God had given him influence over. So really the issue of teaching then becomes the, the overflow of personal study and personal obedience, which then equips and qualifies you to teach others effectively. So there we've seen the first ingredient to this great revival in Nehemiah chapter 8 was the, the heart condition of true spiritual leadership. Now in the second place, I want us to look at the heart of a true spiritual congregation. Um, phew, my part is over for now. Let's turn the spotlight uh, away from us as, as elders and, and leaders in the church this morning. And let's turn the spotlight onto you as the church at Honey Ridge for a moment. And let's consider the heart of a true spiritual congregation, of which I'm also a member, by the way. Again, the, the timing of this message in God's providence comes just before we plan to resume our services after seven months of, of lockdown, after seven months of rolling out of bed into the lounge for online church. Perhaps you haven't even rolled out of bed yet this morning, but are sliding in and out of your mid-morning doze as you watch the service on your cell phone. As much as the elders or other church leaders must have a heart for God and a desire to teach His Word and an, and an eagerness to resume our services in a few weeks' time, if we are serious about desiring God's work of revival in our day, how should you as the church at Honey Ridge be preparing yourself for this mighty work of God? So, What can we learn about a people that are ready and hungry for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in revival? 
Well, firstly, I want you to see there was a hunger for the reading of the Word of God. So move with me now to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we're going to be spending the rest of our time today in Nehemiah chapter 8. And let's read from verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So here we see a clear record that the people were hungry for God's word. They were hungry as families, men and women and children. They gathered together, united as the people of God, as, as we gather as a church, as we look forward to, to regathering as a church, and look at what they demanded from their leaders. Not a revamped building, as much as we are looking forward to our return. No, they gathered simply outside in the public square. Not a live worship band with the latest sound system. Not a program of, of entertainment with multimedia. Look at what the people requested. They told their spiritual leaders, bring us the word of God. We want to hear God's word. We are told that they were attentive to the reading of scripture for six hours from early morning until midday. And they listened carefully to all that was being read. There's more going on here in the hearts of the people than just a, a hunger for God's word. Look at what verse 5 tells us. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood there was an incredible respect for the word of God, a, a recognition of the authority of God's word. When God's word is read, it is in actual fact God himself speaking. And so they stood as the scriptures were read, as you would stand in the presence of the king. We know that this practice continues in some churches today. And yes, it can become something mechanical and, and ritualistic as anything else in the church can become. But it certainly challenges our, our lazy, half-hearted attitude to the scriptures, doesn't it? I'm not trying to point any fingers here this morning because I don't know the real facts. But as I look at the, the YouTube statistics for our weekly services during lockdown... Less than half of you who watch the sermon as you are doing right now also watch the video of the scriptures being read. Now, I truly hope and pray that the other half of you have actually taken the time to read the passage of scripture for yourself before the sermon starts. But if you haven't, then something is very wrong. Why would you want to listen to me speak for even 10 minutes, let alone 45 minutes, if what I'm saying is not grounded in and built upon and expounding the word of God, which you haven't even taken five minutes to read? 
This whole account challenges the modern Western idea of bite-sized theology, of a church service being over within an hour or at most an hour and a half because we've got things to do with our day. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why we are are not seeing God blessing the church with revival in many decades because of our defiling the Lord's day by thinking that Sunday is fun day. Sunday is my day, which in turn puts more and more pressure on pastors to shorten the service, to shorten the passages of Scripture, to shorten the the preaching, to shorten the amount of singing so that we can get on with our day. Where is the hunger for God's word? When last have you gone to the elders of this church and said to them, we want more of God's word. We want you to read it more. We want you to explain it more. We want you to preach it more because we can't get enough of God's word. Secondly, we see a hunger For the understanding of God's word. Verse 4 and verse 7 give us two lists of names. These were the elders and the Levites. These were the spiritual leaders and teachers among the people of God. And here we see what they did when the scriptures were read for six hours. Verse 7. These elders and, and Levites, they helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see a wonderful pattern here for biblical expository preaching. The reading of God's word was central, but immediately connected with it was the clear explanation of the reading so that the people could understand. Some commentators suggest that this six-hour-long service was a continuous mix of reading the scriptures from the, from the pulpit, from the platform, followed by small group discussions led by the elders to explain the passage before moving on to the next portion of scripture. But the crux here is that the people were not satisfied with fluff. With, with superficial talks that kind of skimmed across the top of God's word. They wanted it read, all of it, and they wanted to understand it fully before they moved on to the next section. And then thirdly, we see a hunger for the application of the word of God. Not only did the people desire to hear God's word and, and have it explained to them, but we see An incredible practical response to the word of God. See, being hearers of the word but not doers is of no value. James says to us that it is through our obedience to the word of God that we reveal the true spiritual condition of our hearts. And so here in verse 6, connected with, with their respect for the word of God, we see something else which is necessary for our hearts to be Rightly obeying God's word. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
And here we see that true revival begins in a place of submissive worship. Humble hearts before the King of Kings. It is His Word that we are reading. It is His commands that we are understanding. And our response of obedience will only flow out of a heart of submission and worship to Him. Following the reading and the explaining of the Word of God, we see how these submissive hearts responded. In verse 9b, we see that they had a deep remorse over sin. They were cut to the heart by the words of the law when they realized just how far they had fallen from the standards that God had set. And here we see a wonderful glimpse of the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work on that day. We've considered a number of times in our series so far from John chapter 16 that Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict men of sin and judgment and righteousness. When last have you wept over your sins as you read the Word of God, as it exposes your thoughts, your deeds, your actions, against the perfect standard of God's holiness. As you look back over the pages of history, every true revival in the history of the church has had this as its central characteristic. That through the preaching of the word, people come under the conviction of sin and they are cut to their hearts by their sinfulness and their guilt before the law of God. In 1738, George Whitfield returned from a trip to America, only to find that the Anglican church in which he had grown up, his, the pulpits were closed to him because he was not an ordained minister in the Church of England. And so this forced Whitfield outdoors to open-air preaching. And listen to how Whitfield describes his first open-air preaching service. He says, I hastened to Kingswood, that's in Bristol, and there were about 10,000 people to hear me. The trees and the hedges were full of people. All was hush when I began. The sun shone bright and God enabled me to preach for an hour with great power and so loudly that all I was told could hear me. The fire is kindled in this country and I know all the devils in hell shall not be able to quench it. Miners just up from the mines listened and the tears flowed, making white gutters down their coal-black faces. The evidence of true revival is a deep remorse over sin. But secondly, the application of the word also brought about great joy. Look at verse 10 to 12. And we aren't really given the details here, but we see this, that the, the impact of this, of this gospel preaching that took place on that day. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, encouraged the people, saying, be quiet. Stop crying. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? 
because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I just love this section as a pastor. Because we see here that the application of the word of God firstly resulted in in weeping over their sin. And in the same application of the word of God resulted in great rejoicing. This is the evidence of genuine salvation and revival right here. There is godly sorrow which leads to repentance. And with that comes a great rejoicing that Jesus has paid the price And that there is true forgiveness to be found in him. Just a few days away from this gathering was going to be the the celebration of the Day of Atonement. And the Levites, I'm sure, as they explained the law which exposed the sins of the people and caused this great grief and, and conviction of sin, that they would have no doubt explained too the significance of the Day of Atonement. That the sacrificial lamb would be killed for the sins of the people. And the scapegoat would have their guilt laid upon him as it was sent out into the wilderness. And all of that was pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God. The final scapegoat for our sins. And surely this would have brought the people exceedingly great joy in the Lord. And then thirdly, we see that the application of the word brought about changed lives. Chapter 8 and verse 13 and and following explains the huge impact that this revival had on the lives of the people. This was not a a short-term emotional experience. It had an impact on the nation of Israel right up to the coming of the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people who experienced the true power of God and and the grace of God were, were no longer spectators to the things of God. They had become integral members and participate, uh, participants of it. Experientially, they became part of what God was doing among his people. Some of you have been spectators at Honeyridge for many years. All of us, to some degree, have been spectators in the true sense of the word over the last seven months as we sat and and watched church services on, on a television or cell phone screen. But the soil of true revival is not prepared in a pajamas and slippers approach to Sunday worship. It's found in a hunger as the people of God for the reading and understanding and application of the word of God in our lives. So we've seen something of the heart of true spiritual leadership and the heart of a true spiritual congregation. And in the final place, I want to conclude this morning with the heart of a true spiritual revival. No revival can ever occur apart from the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I must make it clear as I say that, that the Holy Spirit is not the third ingredient to the revival recipe. In other words, good leadership plus a good congregation plus the Holy Spirit equals revival. No, there's no such thing, you see, as true spiritual leadership apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And there is no such thing as a true spiritual congregation apart from the prior working and stirring of the Holy Spirit to cause the the hearts of the people to hunger for God. 
And so we must see the Holy Spirit working throughout this whole revival account. We see, firstly, the Holy Spirit at work in Nehemiah. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Do you see that, that this desire for God's people, this concern for the glory of God which characterized Nehemiah, these things were put into his heart by God. Notice the, the personal nature of his confession. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. We see the Holy Spirit at work in Ezra as well. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 6, we see he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the law of God, Lord of God, had given to Israel. And the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now that is a phrase that occurs about ten times in Ezra and Nehemiah, making it abundantly clear to us that God was at work in the lives of his servants. But secondly, we also see that the Holy Spirit was at work in the hearts of the people. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, we read this already. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. It was God who gave his people a desire for his word. It was God at work who empowered the preaching. It was God at work who convicted of sin. It was God at work who gave the joy of their salvation. It was God at work who changed the lives of this great number of men and women and children. No true revival can ever come about apart from the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so as we close this morning, you might be wondering how what we have read then squares up against the, the revivals of the Great Awakening under men like Jonathan Edwards in America and George Whitfield in England. And so let me read to you an account from Jonathan Edwards of what took place in America in 1735. Edwards writes, the noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies upon all occasions was upon these things only. This work of God as it was carried on, soon made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. The doings of God were seen in His sanctuary. God's day was a delight, and His tabernacles were sociable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, everyone earnestly intent on the public worship, every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. 
But in all companies, on other days, on whatever occasions persons met together, Christ was to be heard of and seen in the midst of them. Now listen to this. Our young people, when they met, didn't gossip on WhatsApp channels. No, what did they do? They desired to spend the time in talking of the excellency and dying love of Jesus Christ. The glory of the way of salvation. The wonderful, free, sovereign grace of God. His glorious work in the conversion of a soul. The truth and certainty of the great things of God's word. And the sweetness of the view of his perfections. Don't you long for such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this day. In this place. When God's Spirit so moves among us, converting sinners, transforming us in such a powerful way that the whole of Joburg is affected. Pubs and and bottle stores are closed. Drug dealers are saved and, and the rest go out of business. Poverty dwindles because people are committed to hard work and integrity. And families flourish because husbands lead their wives and families in the knowledge of the Lord. The ANC cannot do this. The DA cannot do this. Not even the ACDP or the EFF can do this. Only God can transform our city and our country through the mighty outpouring of His Holy Spirit in revival. Let me close with a few words from Walter Kaiser as a fitting prayer. Then to conclude God's word this morning. Come, let's go to the Lord in prayer. May our Lord be pleased to visit us with a revival similar to the one he gave under Ezra and Nehemiah. Until then, may all who hunger and thirst for righteousness flee to the full teaching of the word of God. May they cry out in prayer for God's mercy on our communities, crops, nation and churches. And may they pray so that revival may come soon in the providence and good hand of God. Lord, this is our prayer today. Please raise up and equip us as true spiritual leaders. Please convict and save and restore us as a true spiritual congregation. And please pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in revival to the glory and honor of your name. Start with us at Honey Ridge, Lord, we ask. Do this work in congregations all across our city where Jesus Christ is proclaimed so that Johannesburg might resound with the praise and the worship and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His name, with thanksgiving and praise. Amen. Well, let's close our time of worship then this morning by singing a wonderful new hymn called The Cause of Christ, which is a personal song of commitment to live our lives for Jesus, for the extension of his kingdom here on earth. As we do that more and more as individuals and as a church, let us be praying that God would be pleased to pour out his Holy Spirit in revival. May the Lord bless you in this week ahead. Amen.